Good morning. Welcome to the return of Jay's Talk Plus. Been a minute since I heard that music. That's a, a little custom intro. Our pal Steve Sladkowski from the band Pop whipped up for us. I missed it. I did not miss talking about a team that's completely incapable of hitting with runners in scoring position. If you think back about a year ago, it's actually 51 weeks ago. It almost worked out timing-wise uh, exactly a year to the date that Jays Talk Plus started last year. What was the main topic of conversation? It was, well, the Jays can't hit with runners in scoring position. And we dive in deep on the process and, hey, are they chasing too much? Are they swinging at bad pitches? Are they jumping too early? And all the process indicators were there to say this is the same team that is killing it in all other situations. And what happened in June and July, the Blue Jays became the best team in baseball, hitting with runners in scoring position. I don't think that's going to keep anyone warm right now, coming off of a weekend and a week where the story was missed opportunities for the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, we're going to get into all of that, of course. We're going to get into some of the managerial decisions. We're going to get into the fact that the Blue Jays waited and waited and waited for a stretch of home games after such a road-heavy start to the season and just squandered it, going 4-6 and six on that 10-game homestand. We're going to get to a lot today. We'll have Keegan Matheson of MLB.com. We'll have our pal Arden Zwelling from Sportsnet.ca next to me in studio in the second hour. We'll also talk to Tampa Bay Rays general manager Peter Bendix ahead of this four-game series down at the Trop. Before we get into all of that, though, if you weren't listening last year, if you forgot, this is Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, this will be a weekday daily show now, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. on Sports at 590 The Fan, on Sports at 360, and in the Blue Jays Talk podcast feed, wherever you get those. Um, if you missed it late last week, Jeff Blair and Kevin Barker announced some of the changes that are coming to our daily schedule. Today's a bit of a asterisk one because it is a holiday and hope you're enjoying your long weekend. If it is a long weekend for you, uh, if you're looking for Blair and Barker, they now move to the five to seven slot. They'll be simulcast on sports at five the fan and sports net three They'll basically be your lead in uh, to blue Jays games. Although asterisk there as well, that game one of Jays and Rays starts at six forty, So they've got a, a 90 minute slot Today, so uh, morning show will be six to nine. JD Bunkus podcast nine to ten. I'll be with you ten to twelve again on Sports at five ninety and Sports at three sixty on television, as well as in the Blue Jays talk feed. We'll kick it to the Jeff Merrick show. It'll go to Kipper and Bourne, uh, Will Lou and Alex Wong. The Raptor show will be a podcast feed only as they continue to bring you. Geez, I can only imagine what those shows are going to be like this week with the Celtics down three games to nothing and embarrassing themselves. Last night, basically quitting on Joe Missoula. Very excited for those slander pods. Um, ben Ennis, my former co-host on Fan Drive Time, will move to three to five, and then Blair and Barker five to seven. So uh, a lot of change, but this is kind of the plan with the Leafs out now. The Raptors obviously out a couple weeks back to bring you more Jays coverage uh, throughout the day. Now, when we lay all that out, it, it certainly feels a lot more exciting when the Blue Jays are playing well. Uh, they have dropped six of their last seven to fall to 25 and 22. That's a good record, but it is bottom of the American league East. They've also uh, the run differential down to just plus seven. So if you're looking, Hey, if they've been a little unfortunate, not really, they're right about where you'd expect to be. They're down to eighth in the American league in total offense, dead last in the American league East. 
as our pal Ben Nicholson-Smith tweeted out this morning, last year the Jays led the American League in batting average, on-base percentage, and slugging percentage. Right now, they're fifth in the AL, and this is just the AL, not the entirety of baseball. Fifth in the AL in batting average, fifth in on-base percentage, and eighth in slugging. They are downright pedestrian when it comes to hitting for power. So the weekend that was highlighted a lot of that on Friday. They lose six to two, maybe a bit of fight coming back, but then a late Adam Frazier home run kind of puts to bed. Any thought of a, of a comeback there. That was an Apple TV plus game, by the way. So you got a little different perspective on that one Saturday and Sunday. I was on the call with Ben Wagner on sports at five ninety, the fan from down at Rogers center, which was a blast Two sellout crowds, a couple beautiful days with the dome open, a couple of extra inning games, that didn't go the Toronto Blue Jays way on Saturday. You could have been positive for a little bit. It was a nice step forward for Alec Manoa. He went past the fifth inning for just the third time all season. Slider was a little more effective than it has been. And again, when it comes to him just giving you length, even when he doesn't completely have it, that's a a big part of what Alec Manoa was able to do for this team last year. It hasn't been there this year. Uh, So he did that for you on Saturday. However, The Jays go two for 15 with runners in scoring position, wind up losing in extra innings. Yesterday, pitcher's duel. Now, maybe you don't think Dean Kramer should be on on one side of a pitcher's duel. Can't really blame you there. But Kevin Gosman gives them eight innings. Those 115 pitches, which, by the way, is the most the Jays have asked the pitcher to go since Marcus Stroman back in August of 2017. Um, we know that, you know, the complete game is not really a thing anymore. Chris Bassett's complete game shutout the other week was, you know, you had to go back to Marcus Stroman and Mark Burley for the last time a Blue Jay did that. Roy Halladay is still the leader in complete games. Uh, if you look at the last, you know, 15, 20 years or so, um, those have gone away. But the avoidance of any pitch count north of 100 has really been more in the last couple of seasons. You go back to 2015, 16, 17, the Orioles were throwing Kevin Gosman 120 pitches sometimes. The Blue Jays were doing it a little bit more regularly with some of the horses at the front end of their rotation. So Kevin Gosman with a bit of a throwback, 115 pitches, gives them eight terrific innings. But the Jays, once again, can't come through offensively. Twice they end innings by hitting into double plays, some outs on the base paths, They get to the 10th inning. Baltimore tacks one on. Jays answer in the bottom of the 10th. That's a a positive. You're feeling good. The Orioles bullpen at that point, by the way, because before they came into Toronto, they'd had another very tight series. That bullpen was very overworked. Felix Bautista, Yenye Cano, both unavailable on Sunday. So the top two arms in that bullpen, not available. And you're looking at names like Austin Voth and Danny Colom, uh, you like your chances, even with a thinned out bullpen yourself. However, top of the 11th, the Orioles add five runs. Jimmy Garcia has some trouble there, to say the least. The Jays aren't coming back from an 8-3 deficit in the bottom of the 11th. Robbing us, by the way, had that been a one-run game or, or a tie game, Yusei Kikuchi was coming into pinch run. Alejandro Kirk was going to be the zombie runner in the bottom of the 11th, and Yusei Kikuchi was getting up and ready. Uh, that would have been a blast. I think you have to go back to Marcus Stroman again for the last time a Blue Jay had a pitcher pinch run. Uh, we got robbed of that. So you look at the weekend as a whole. They're swept by the Baltimore Orioles. First time the Orioles have swept a series at Rogers Center since the days of Sidney Ponson. 
anytime you have to find that name when you go back in the baseball reference pages, you know it's a, it's not a good time. So in addition to that, they start this 10-game homestand sweeping the Braves, finish 4-6 and six on the homestand. A disappointment, especially when you consider that they went 1-6 and six in the AL East portion of that homestand. They're now 5-12 and 12 in their division overall. And the offense continues to be an issue. In 11 of their last 12 games, they've scored five runs or fewer. Why do I choose that cutoff? If a team scores six runs or more in Major League Baseball this season, they are winning about 81% of the time. That's kind of the cutoff. You, you know, if you score four or five runs, it's maybe going to be a coin flip. If you score less than that, you're in tough. If you can get to six runs or more, 81% of the time you're winning. The Jays have done that just once in the last 12 games Uh, again Jays down to eighth in the American League in runs eighth in slugging they're the bottom of the American League East and we'll talk to Keegan Matheson momentarily about what's gone into this if the Jays are gripping the bats a little too much how John Schneider feels about it but the story of the the weekend and the weekend really this team right now is their inability to take advantage of big situations have the big inning hit with runners in scoring position since May 8th this team is hitting 177 with runners in scoring position. That's the third worst mark in baseball. If we use WRC plus, that's weighted runs created plus, it it takes all offense and adjusts for park factors and tries to put everyone on the same scale. Um, It also, of course, values things like hitting for power with runners in scoring position. Uh, The Jays are dead last. They have been about 40% as competent as a league average offense with runners in scoring position since May 8th. That's a stretch of two weeks. Um, Even if you zoom out and look at the entire season, they're 24th in baseball in batting average with runners in scoring position. They're 21st in WRC plus with runners in scoring position. They are in a bad way right now. So much so that John Schneider said last night, enough is enough. Keegan Matheson of MLB.com maybe had to hear that comment remotely because the 11 inning game had him writing his game story from the cab on the way to the airport. He joins us now from his second home down in St. Petersburg. Keegan Matheson, how are you, buddy? You know what? I'm back in Florida. I'm hiding in a hotel from the heat again. The Blue Jays aren't hitting with runners in scoring position. This could be any year really recently for me. It's uh, it blurs together. A late May tradition, having you on to talk about the Jays' inability to come up in big spots while you're very sweaty down in Florida. Um, so you you were writing in the cab, and that's, you know, we don't want to go too inside baseball and what that's like, and you're obviously a pro. that That's nothing to you. But I am curious how disappointed you were to have to change your game story from the very obvious at one point story of pinch runner Yusei Kikuchi wins game for Blue Jays in the 11th. How disappointed were you we didn't get to see Kikuchi running for Kirk and all the bizarro lineup changes that may have had to flow from not even having a catcher in the game at some point for the Blue Jays last night? Extremely. Listen, I need to be a little selfish sometimes. And how many hundreds of stories do I write a year? I need a couple along the way that are treats that I get to lean into and kind of tongue-in-cheek make bizarre. That would have been it. When uh, Yusei Kikuchi, that, that beautiful shot that Sportsnet had in the dugout of Danny Jansen putting the, the, the slide guard, the wrist guard on him, <laughs> that, would have, that would have changed everything. If Yusei Kikuchi had scored a run, this game, uh, this team would have won 10 in a row, I promise you. It would have been the moment of the summer. It would have launched a million new Blue Jays fans. 
But uh, unfortunately, it went uh, a little bit in the other direction. That was uh, about as uninspiring an ending as it could have been. Uh, You have about 10 opportunities to win a game, and then, whoa, did it ever fall apart. It did, and you can obviously, we could pick at, you know, what happened with Jimmy Garcia in the 11th inning, what happened in the 10th inning with, you know, not not that Nate Pearson had a a bad outing by any means, giving them two innings for a shorthanded bullpen, the 9th and the 10th, but neither of those games should have gone to extra innings based on what the Jays were able to set up on offense and not come through on two for 15 with runners in scoring position on Saturday, a couple of double plays grounded into with men on base, a couple outs on the base paths yesterday. Um, I know your story today at bluejays.com leads with the quote from John Schneider about enough is enough. Um, what are you seeing from this team inside those clubhouse walls and, and to hear John Schneider tell it, because this is not a, a weekend thing. This is a weeks long issue now for this Blue Jays offense. Yeah. And this is major because there is no such thing as early in the American league East. I don't care that it's may uh, in the American league East. My gut spring training losses are worrying in this division. Everybody has a winning record. There's no time for patience, and that is unfortunately not being alarmist. It's just the reality of playing in what might be the worst division to play in in all of pro sports. And I don't care how often people tell me we love the competitiveness, we love coming to play great teams every day. No. You would rather be in a division with the Royals four times. I promise. Everybody would rather that. So the urgency here is what's worrying because you are putting yourself in a position as the Blue Jays where you're going to need some help from other teams around the league to kind of reel these teams in slowly over the next four months. And when John Schneider says enough is enough, A, yes, absolutely, it's enough at this point. But what does that mean? What does that look like? And hitting with runners in scoring position, Blake, is so frustrating when we have this conversation for not the first time, certainly, Because how does that happen? It's not a matter of trying more. This is not a matter of playing your fourth line more and having a fight and being a bit grittier. It's not that easy. And as relievers or as opposing starters are changing their approach, can the Blue Jays adjust better? Yes, absolutely, with runners in scoring position. But there's no magic elixir to this. There's no magic fix to immediately do it. It's just about the players you already have playing like they should play. It's about Vladdy playing like he should play. It's about having some power in between all of this, and they just do not have it right now. It's something that has to come from within, and it is something that is not straightforward, and that might make it a little more worrying. In fact, you could argue that, you know, you set up there that it's not just an effort thing. It's not just a go out there and hit better thing. You could argue in the game of baseball that that extra pressure, that extra level of effort can take you off your game. Maybe you're a little hyper aggressive up there. You know, we hear the term squeezing the bat a little bit or grinding the dust off the bat Um, in John Schneider's comments last night and in your experience over these 10 days in that clubhouse, are are they wearing this a little bit? Like, can you, can you sense this starting to build on them a a little bit as this problem persists? Yeah, you have to. And frankly, you want them to at this point. And it's a matter of, wearing it and understanding it, but not letting it impact everything. And I think it gets to what John Schneider always says about his definition of clutch, because that's always one of these big brain ideas we talk about in baseball. What is clutch? John Schneider always says it's the ability to do the exact same thing, but in a bigger moment. 
And that's all they need right now. This team is so talented. But what we're seeing right now is that that doesn't matter unless you do something with it. Now, put the Blue Jays and the Baltimore Orioles, their rosters side by side, and to any of our friends who watch 10 baseball games a year, they are going to say, my God, the Blue Jays must have won 14-2. to But that's not happening because it's about execution and it's about consistency at this level. The Orioles, we just saw with the Yankees, and my God, we are about to see this with the Rays, come up in those situations. And I think another part of this, Blake, is the Blue Jays' lack of power. I think they're at 50 home runs in the middle, ranking right around the middle of the league, maybe just slightly in the bottom half. If they're hitting some home runs in between all of this messy play, we forget about this pretty quickly. One solo home run, one solo shot in the third inning that didn't even look all that exciting yesterday, and we're not having this conversation. Power can cover up a lot. It is baseball's best makeup, and we're not seeing that either. So when you don't have any of that working together, that's when it gets ugly. And it, it kind of shows for you that, you know, the way you set something up, the way I don't I don't want to use the term spin, but for lack of a better term, the way you can spin things in baseball, you can go two ways, right? Hey, if you're too power heavy, you lose the ability to manufacture runs, to get a single, move that runner over, get another single and, and execute in that way. But also when those things aren't coming, when it's your batting average that's struggling, sometimes you do need to just walk into one. Um, you're right. The Jays only have 50 home runs on the year that ranks 18th in all of baseball they've really struggled to hit home runs at home and you know a solo home runs great uh they have only hit 13 of them with runners in scoring position um and i say that just to kind of hammer continue hammering home that this is a, a real problem when you have the opportunity for big innings as well as executing uh in these close games like we saw saturday and sunday now we can dig into some of the process stuff and hey are the jays chasing bad pitches more are they not lifting the ball as much if you look at the season as a whole right now the home run thing is actually a little perplexing because the jays are near the top of the league in um, most batted ball things they're, they're putting the ball in the air yes roger center is not playing very hitter friendly so far but they're not hitting a lot of home runs on the road either I set that up to ask you about Vladimir Guerrero Jr. specifically, Keegan, because he's kind of a, a bellwether for that. Um, obviously, having a, a pretty solid season overall, we're seeing him hit for average. We takes the walks that that we see him take. However, he ranks 65th of 168 qualified hitters in isolated slugging. So, how much extra base? oomph you're putting on top of your batting average he hasn't homered since may 4th um how much of this flows from the top guys with the exception of Bo Bichette? i think not being able to get it done in the big spots i, I know you know it's a great thing when Terran vavra comes through for the orioles and maybe you want that from a whit merrifield or kevin kiermeyer but realistically you know it's it's the vladimir guerrero juniors the matt chapman's who are going to drive this team what are you seeing from vlad in these moments and, and overall with the power outage right now yeah eventually this will be contagious and eventually that needs to start with either george springer or, or vladdy and vladdy at the plate to start the year blake I, I thought was really fantastic because he was getting back to what he was doing in the minor leagues when he was the best prospect in the world and that means he wasn't just hitting for power but he was hitting for contact, which is his best skill, better than his power. And he was working walks, working those deep at-bats. Because Vladdy in the minor leagues 
looked like he saw the game in slow motion. It, it was the closest example to that I've ever seen in baseball. And he showed flashes of that earlier this year. But that involves a bit of patience in itself because Vladdy, like we saw a couple of times last night, loves to go up and take the biggest hack you have <laughs> ever seen. There was one last night that was just out of his boots completely. So when he was succeeding with that earlier in the season, John Schneider was really encouraged. I think the Blue Jays were really happy with what they saw. But the quotes all along the way were, hey, we're seeing Vladdy be more patient, get back to who he was when he was younger. We want him to sustain this. But that involves a lot of focus, a lot of mental strength to stay in that place because what baseball players are facing, and this is not advanced in any means, but home runs are really cool. It's really cool to hit a home run. And when you try to, it gets a bit harder. And I think we've seen Vladdy looking for that a bit at times. And that is a taste of 2022 Vladdy. When he even said as much, yeah, I was looking for numbers. I was coming off a season that was pretty much AL MVP caliber. I was looking to hit home runs, looking to put up numbers. And you understand that. That's not just a selfish thing. That's trying to help your team out in the biggest, boldest, loudest way. But it has not been working. And it needs to start with Vladdy. Every team in every sport has one player who really makes a team go and changes their identity offensively. On this team, it's George Springer and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. It needs to come from them. Those big hits need to come from them. Because Bo Bichette right now is kind of stranded up at the top. He's yep. doing a lot of good things, but not enough is happening around him. So with respect to Vlad, you mentioned, you know, 2022 versus 2021 and home runs and walks can be a bit of a chicken and egg thing, right? Like I think back to Jose Batista's breakout home run hitting season yeah. and he wasn't really like a, a walk a high, he he walked enough, but he wasn't this mega high walk guy because pitchers had to, at some point, get afraid of him and believe that that was the version of Jose Batista. I don't think pitchers think Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is anything other than the 48 home run version of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. They still pitch him pretty carefully, but you look and his 2021 stands out as such an outlier. Yeah, because of the overall numbers and the 48 home runs, but his walk rate was also significantly higher that year. Every year of his career, he's been in the 8 to 9% range, except that season when he was up north of 12%. Um, now, a lot goes into that, how pitchers are pitching you, but his chase rate was also much lower that year. The, the chase rate being how often you swing at pitches outside of the zone. You kind of highlighted there, Keegan, there were a couple yesterday and there have been a couple recently where, yeah, he gets a cut fastball sitting at like 89, 90 and it catches a part of the plate and he wants to jump all over it. I can at least understand that. What do you think has gone into last year and this year, him going back to chasing a little bit outside of the zone instead of making pitchers come to him with stuff that he can really drive? Yeah, and it's such a fine line of managing eagerness in the most basic terms because Vladdy wants to do damage. He knows what it looks like when a Vladimir Guerrero Jr. home run leaves the bat, and it's a beautiful thing, and he knows that he can change these games. But like yesterday when John Schneider spoke after the game, he said that we probably saw 100 cutters today. We need to adjust. And as pitchers are changing how they pitch the Blue Jays, my goodness, they are certainly changing how they pitch a Vlad. If you are an opposing pitcher, you're sitting down and you're facing the Blue Jays in a couple of days, you're starting with Vlad, and you're putting a lot of time into him. So you are getting every pitcher's best effort, best sequence, best coaching plan, best adjustments. 
what made Vladdy so special in the minor leagues was that he wasn't just one step ahead of that. He was two or three. It looked like a dad playing against kids. Hmm. It was ridiculous. But at this point, I think you are seeing pitchers be very careful and very good with how they manage him because they see these same things, these same tendencies. Okay, he's chasing just a bit more. Let's see how far we can push that, maybe another inch or two or three outside the zone. And we're not talking about somebody who is flailing at sliders in the dirt and hitting 200. Even Vladdy at his B or B-minus level is still pretty good. But if you get him back to that 1,000 OPS, that 320 hitter, 380 on base, changes the lineup completely. And what the Blue Jays need now from Vladdy, just as much as those home runs, maybe more, is his ability to put the ball in play hard, his contact ability. When he was coming up as MLB Pipeline's number one guy, he was the first 80-grade hit tool, which is as good as it gets, that they had given out. And what made Vladdy special was not just the power, because there's lots of guys that hit for power. Look at Aurelvis Martinez. That's incredible power. There's nothing else. What Vladdy had was everything else, the ability to hit, to go the other way, to put balls in play, and keep a lineup going no matter what. That is the beauty of Vladdy. And once he gets back to that, I think that's what gets contagious with everyone else around him. And to highlight that, we're talking about Vlad, and the tone might suggest a guy who's, you know, been outright bad. He's hitting 294. He's still he's still the number 30 hitter in baseball. Uh, in I overall. wish my bad days were that good, Blake. My goodness, my yeah, job would be I, easier. I wish my good days were that good, Keegan. Um, so th- <laughs> there is obviously the floor is just so high with Vlad. Another thing you could look at that's encouraging is that, you know, he's still among the league leaders in, in all the batted ball stuff for the season and his launch angle. So how well he's lifting the ball is much better this year. We're not seeing as many uh, grounders to the left side in in those big spots. It's, you know, it seems funny to be like, well, he's getting out in different ways. Um, but that was a big thing, lifting the ball with more consistency. Another thing yeah. that maybe lends some room for optimism, and this, this doesn't help much because you've already lost these games and, you know, put yourself in the hole in the American League East. But Keegan, when you look back to last year, the fact that they went through this in April and May a little bit last year, in fact, the team's offensive numbers at ex- this exact point in May last year were worse than this year. Um, And then they became the hottest team in June and July because the process was solid and the guys were the guys. Does that give you any level of confidence right now? Or is this, do you, do you need to see kind of proof of concept from this group before you, you start thinking it might come back around? Yeah, that keeps me away from saying this is really dire. Uh, I think because you're believing in the number of talented players on this team too. If this was a team full of retreads and scrubs, absolutely, it's panic time, but it's not. This is a team full of not just stars, but goodness, superstars in Major League Baseball. Are they playing like it right now? No, absolutely not, but the talent is there. If you look at this as an MLB The Show roster, you've got some Hmm. high numbers on this team. But I think when you look to last year, the main worry for me is the new schedule and the reality of the AL East. Uh, I did not expect this to be as big a factor. And frankly, it's surprising me how big a factor the new schedule is just with fewer games in the American League East. Because if this were the same time last year, you are having a bit of an easier time saying, okay, still have nine left against the Yankees, 10 left against the Orioles. Those could be some wins there to make up ground. Now the Blue Jays are going to have to rely more on other teams, which means worse teams, to kind of reel in the Yankees, reel in the O's, 
And this isn't too, too urgent. It's not September yet, but you're putting yourself at the bottom of a hill that's going to be a little tough. And I think the realities of the AL East mean that a bad day is a really bad day. Even a tough day is a bad day in the AL East because there's no room for error at this point. The Blue Jays have a winning record, and they're in last place. It's just a division that sucks to be in. But since the Blue Jays are stuck there, it really adds a lot of urgency to all of this, unfortunately. And when you have a bad week, I mean, goodness, last week we were talking about sweeping Atlanta. That was an incredible run. And maybe four days from now we're talking about, look at this team, they're back. But in the AL East, if you go one and six, the two teams above you, that is worse than one and six, I think is the best way to say it. And you're right. And, and look, it, it, the standings are early. It's 47 games in. They're 25 and 22. But baseball's hard and this division's hard. And it's not far from memory that, you know, an iffy start last year as the Yankees got out to a blistering start was the difference between winning the division and having a bye versus your whole season coming down to a best two out of three random fest, right? We know, obviously, given a large enough sample, the better team will win more. But in a three-game series uh, between a couple of good teams, anything can happen. And and Tampa Bay has at least done a decent job to, in the early going here, potentially insulate themselves from that randomness. Although the other thing that highlights just how important these games are is uh, Baltimore is suddenly only two and a half back in the division because Tampa's come down to earth and Baltimore's done exactly what we'd hoped the Blue Jays would have done and taken care of uh, their own business keegan uh last one before i let you go because i know you got a whole morning in florida planned oranges and pineapples and everything else um what have you thought of how john schneider has handled this season so far and i don't mean any sort of like hot seat or comparing it to charlie montoyo last year but you know from the time he took over last season everything went pretty smoothly until the wild card um this year so far, though, there have been some struggles. It, it sounded like John Schneider was showing some frustration uh, last night himself. There was, of course, the the little bit of a snafu visiting the mound a second time on Saturday. Um, how have you felt Schneider's done keeping everyone on the right page and with the right level of focus during this uh, poor stretch? Yeah, there's been a couple of tough ones lately. And for the most part, my opinion about managers is that it's like punters in football. If you're saying their name, probably a bad thing very rarely are we sitting here Blake saying man oh man what a great job by the manager last night it's not really the reality of baseball and especially going back to that Manoa lift a couple of these things have been really tough now a lot of it is unfair blame that a manager takes he cannot go in there and make Vladdy hit better with a runner on third base (laughs) he cannot go in there and pitch for Jimmy Garcia last night but that's the reality of coaching in any sport I think right now John Schneider's most important job, and this is what I believe to be a strength of his as a manager, is managing people, being a communicator in that clubhouse, making sure that everyone is together, making sure there's not a frustrated veteran in the corner or a young guy who's getting disgruntled and feeling like he's dragging behind here. Because frustration would be easy at this point. And within an MLB clubhouse, there are a lot of big personalities. There are a lot of guys used to succeeding and a lot of guys who have spent their whole lives being the best player on their team. So it can be easy to see cracks or divisions within a team, not just the Blue Jays, anybody. So Schneider's job right now is to keep that team tight and together because all spring long, the entire conversation, my goodness, I don't know how many times I wrote this story, 
was tighter baseball, cleaner baseball, doing the little things right over and over and over again. And that's kind of been the opposite of what's happened so far. So that messaging needs to be louder. It needs to be said differently. I don't know how that happens or how it works. But what Schneider talked about for most of spring hasn't been happening lately. Needs to get them back to what they were in April. And this team looked really encouraging early, mid-April. And, uh, you know, certainly a lot of heat on Schneider right now. But uh, like anything, that can change with seven or eight runs tonight. Uh, narratives change very quickly. And uh, my goodness, I, I think he'd be happy to see that happen himself because there's certainly some frustration uh, within that organization. I'm sure he'd love to grab you after the game and say, Keegan, uh, glad you don't have to write the runners in scoring position thing uh, <laughs> again today. Keegan Matheson of MLB.com, of BlueJays.com. Thanks so much for taking the time out this morning and enjoy four days in your favorite place on earth, Tropicana Field. <laughs> oh, I love it. You got it, buddy. Take care. Keegan Matheson, MLB.com, BlueJays.com. As a reminder, with Jays Talk Plus, uh, maybe we don't get to it every day, but the text line's open. You can text us at 590-590. We'll try to work in your comments and questions uh, throughout the course of the show. We're going to do that after this break as well. We've already got a couple in there, as Adam in North York points out. For example, the American League East went 8-2 and two this weekend against the rest of the league. Uh, so in addition to the Jays getting swept by a division rival, everyone else in the division uh, doing their job. So keep those, keep those texts coming to 590-590. Uh, look ahead at 11 o'clock. We're going to talk to Tampa Bay Rays general manager Peter Bendix, and then we'll be joined in studio by Arden Zwelling. Uh, but after the break, your text to 590-590 as Jays Talk Plus continues on Sportsnet 590, The Fan, and Sportsnet 360. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. The Jays Talk Plus. Little Nova Scotia sound for you coming off of talking to Keegan Matheson of MLB.com and BlueJays.com. Not exactly seeing the good in everyone in this Toronto Blue Jays lineup or bullpen right now. Some bullpen positives over the weekend. It's uh I know he gave up a run in the 10th. He let the zombie runner score thanks to a single to Cedric Mullins. But Nate Pearson continues to look real good back there. He had a hundred point eight on the radar gun at one point yesterday. Uh, his fastball has been up around 99 with some consistency and his slider and curveball, zero hits off of them so far. We're talking small samples, but I'm going to go a little deeper on that with Arden Zwelling uh, in the back portion of this show. As a reminder, we're with you until 12 o'clock. The new lineup here on Sports at 590, the fan Jays talk plus with you 10 to 12 every weekday. Blair and Barker now in the five to seven slot. Except for when it's uh, 5 to 6.30 like tonight because the Jays start the first of four against the Rays at 6.40. We're going to talk to Rays general manager Peter Bendix at 11 o'clock. We also get to do one of my favorite things with this Rays lineup. We don't know what the lineup is yet, but it stands to reason that Harold Ramirez could be a part of it. And of course, that lets us fire up, you know, the old transaction tree Uh, Because he is an old friend. He is a former Blue Jay. He's now 28 and get it done with the race. He's bounced around a little bit, had some time in Miami, had some time with Cleveland, now in his second season 
with Tampa Bay and one of the breakout players in the early parts of the season, hitting 317 with a 158 WRC plus. So offense about 58% better than a league average hitter when we control for things like park factors uh, and home and away splits. He has been a monster at the dish. A lot of extra base power. Um, just get it done in a, in a lot of different ways for this Rays team. He is a former Blue Jay, or at least Blue Jay farmhand. He was a part of one of the best trade trees uh, in Blue Jays history. So if you, you look way back, Drew Hutchison sent to the Pittsburgh Pirates for Francisco Liriano. And the big part here is the Jays, yes, added Liriano, but they, it was also a little bit of eating some money uh, to help the Pirates out. They get Francisco Liriano, Harold Ramirez, and Reese McGuire. For Drew Hutchison. Hutchison, who had been a 15th round pick, had a couple good years with the Jays, a couple not so good years with the Jays. Now actually back in the organization at AAA Buffalo as a minor league free agent. Um, Reese McGuire, sixth round for a bit, dealt for Zach Collins. McGuire now with the Red Sox. Collins now uh, in Cleveland's system at AAA. Had a, a brief stint with the Toronto Blue Jays. But the big part of this trade, Harold Ramirez wasn't long for the Blue Jays. Francisco Liriano was. Stuck around for a bit and then was dealt to the Houston Astros, won a ring with them, and the Jays in return got Nori Aoki, who kicked around for about a month, but Teoscar Hernandez comes back, spends a better part of five years here, ranks 11th in all-time Blue Jays home runs with 129, and that trade tree continues. Drew Hutchison for Liriano, McGuire, and Harold Ramirez eventually trickles down to Teoscar, who has now trickled down to Eric Swanson, who this last week aside has been a nice piece in the bullpen, and Adam Mako, who, while he has a 566 ERA over his first five starts with high A Vancouver, monster strikeout rates. So you're seeing a little bit of what the Blue Jays liked in the left-hander they picked up. So Drew Hutchison leading all the way to Eric Swanson and Adam Mako with a Harold Ramirez along the way. We'll talk to Peter Bendix, Rays GM, about how the Rays keep finding and getting the best out of guys like Harold Ramirez or Isak Paredes. Uh, it's pretty wild. Uh, we've also got some questions and comments in the text line. You can keep texting us throughout this show, throughout any Jays Talk Plus show to 590-590. Um, one of the questions comes regarding the bullpen. And it's not, you got to sign these, by the way, name and location so we can shout you out. But uh, someone who didn't sign theirs asks about uh, Romano not being the same pitcher anymore, um, suggesting maybe he comes out of the closer role. Now, in terms of the coming out of the closer role, my question would be, who are you putting in that spot instead? Because the three highest leverage guys outside of Romano coming into this season would have been Eric Swanson, who was fantastic, but has had three rough outings in a row. Anthony Bass, who he has started to get it together in lower leverage spots, no earned runs in five of his last six, but he really struggled at the start of this season. And Jimmy Garcia, who has struggled far more than Jordan Romano has. Jordan Romano coming in with uh, kicking with still a, a 330 ERA. He has blown three saves. The, the situation on Saturday w was tough. He was asked for the 13th time to get a four plus out save. Uh, that is high. There are only two closers in baseball since 2021 who have been asked to get four out saves more often than Jordan Romano, and that's Liam Hendricks and Scott Barlow. Uh, it's a tough go. Now, he didn't get 
any of the outs before before blowing that save. So maybe you don't care about the the four save element. But you did have to get up a little earlier. Um, anyway, your point about Jordan Romano is understood. Some of the stuff under the hood, the slider looks pretty good. Some of the underlying metrics, the the batted ball stuff is still solid. But I think what this highlights is that while this bullpen entered the season with depth, we knew from day one, we, we've talked about it since the offseason. We talked about it in spring training. Bullpen depth and depth into the AAA level is nice. You know, if Adam Simber comes back today, as, as we expect, and Zach Pop's return is around the corner, um, eventually Mitch White as well, you're going to have some tough decisions at the back end of the bullpen. But this always profiled as a bullpen that was going to need more help at the back end, whether that meant Romano moving to a, a situational role or just beefing up the eighth inning, this was always a bullpen that was going to need reinforcements. So uh, to the person who didn't sign that completely understand uh, it's going to be an ongoing conversation until July 31st. I guarantee you Evan B in Niagara, Steve, a couple other people uh, texting in asking about Kevin Biggio and if the Jays could do something to move on from him. It's something I want to talk to Arden Zwelling about when we have him on around 1115, because it, it, it is a tough spot on merit alone. Kevin Biggio should be optioned to AAA right now. There's not much more to it than that. He has hit extremely poorly all season long. We have a multi-year sample now of him not being quite the guy that he first looked like when he called when he got called up initially. Um, on top of which, yesterday was the first time he had drawn a walk since April 3rd. He walked in each of his first three appearances this year and then didn't walk for a month and a half. For a guy whose number one skill is his ability to manage plate appearances, work deep in accounts, and draw walks, him having the lowest walk rate on the team is pretty remarkable. You can argue that, you know, hey, he's not getting regular enough playing time. It's hard to stay locked in like that. It That doesn't really hold water with me because you're a bench player at this point, and if you can't do that in a bench role, maybe it's worth giving someone else a shot. Nathan Lucas drew a start yesterday. It was just his second start uh, of his major league career. He's been on the roster basically all season and only had six plate appearances heading into yesterday. And I thought from him, you saw some, some good approach there. He were, he got behind O two two and ended up working a 10 pitch walk. He had his first major league hit. He obviously adds some defense to the corner outfields and, and maybe Kevin Biggio will get there as a right fielder, but, but you like what Nathan Lucas brings to all three outfield spots and he's a solid base runner where, by the way, Kevin Biggio was a pinch runner earlier in the week and got doubled off at second base on a liner. He should have froze on. And then yesterday, right after he drew that walk, uh, he slides right over second base, steals the base successfully, but overslides it and gets called out. So when, even when it comes to the little things that John Schneider is looking for and asks of his bench guys, Kevin Biggio has not been delivering on those. However, who's coming up? Addison Barger has struggled and then was injured. Otto Lopez struggled mightily to start the year. He's with the team right now as they await word on whether Santiago Espinal is going to hit the IL or not. Espinal came up lame on a stolen base attempt on Saturday. Um, hamstring soreness is what they're calling it right now. Word was yesterday that he had responded better than they anticipated, but Otto Lopez is around just in case. So maybe you say, hey, Santiago Espinal's fine, but Otto Lopez is here. We're going to keep him around, and Kevin Biggio can go down to AAA and get more plate appearances and try to figure it out. The only guys who are hitting at AAA so far, really, are Spencer Horwitz, who they've given him brief opportunities in left field, but he's a first baseman slash DH. Um, he is basically Brandon Belt insurance in terms of role. 
I think he's interesting. I think he's a guy who at some point you, you'd like to get him a window of opportunity to see if all of this hitting at the AAA level, and it's not power hitting. He only has one home run. Um, it, it's mostly batting average and, and doubles fueled, but it, it's really good production, and it's happened at a couple levels of minors now. You'd like to see it, but right now there's no path to playing time for him. Unless Vladimir Guerrero Jr. or Brandon Belt were to get hurt, there's nowhere for him to fit in. Uh, the only other player who's hitting well right now is Ernie Clement, who... You know, you might give a shot to as a utility piece, but he's not on the 40 man. So you'll give an auto Lopez a shot first. Um, you know, if you look at other people, you can always DFA someone, maybe an injury takes you to take someone to a, a 60 day IL. There, there's always going to be 40 man churn. But for right now, in terms of managing the roster over the whole 162 plus you know, we've heard for years how much this front office likes Kevin Biggio, that John Schneider loves Kevin Biggio. I don't think it's going to happen, but to all the people texting in about it on merit with Otto Lopez, having hit a little bit better over the last couple of weeks and having a little bit more positional versatility, um, you know, Nathan Lucas may be making a case for more of the left-handed hitting corner outfield fill in days. Um, I could see it. I don't think they're going to do it, but it's something that, that I'd probably give a strong look to uh, if I were them. Peter in Toronto says it's not just the one and six records that's so distressing, but the one and 11 stat against AL East opponents. Uh, yeah, it's not, it's not all the way one and 11. They, they have, uh, they have more wins than that uh, against the AL East, but it's, uh, it's still not particularly strong. They're five and 12 overall. Uh, anyway, Peter's point is at best, you're now destined for another wild card. Um, what is good what does improved defense and base running mean if you can't score runs? Um, that's been a frustrating part. You did trade out some power in Teoscar Hernandez, um, thinking that you'd be able to score runs in more different ways and prevent runs better. You you bet on defense and base running and bat to ball skill over some of the boomer bust nature of Teoscar Hernandez. Um, and to a lesser extent, Lourdes Gurriel Jr., who has now somehow found a way to be a bat to ball guy and a big power hitter. <laughs> Uh, from the right side, no less. That That's tough. You're right, Peter. It has been a frustrating start. And the improved defense is real. It, they're, they're not perfect, but by some defensive metrics, um, they've been one of the better defenses in baseball. Prior to this weekend, they'd been one of the better base running teams in baseball as well. And they stole four bases on Saturday. But a caught stealing yesterday. Whit Merrifield getting picked off in a big spot. Uh, the base running has not been perfect. So I understand the frustration there, especially as the uh, home runs have dried up a little bit. Paul in Burlington says that so far, Dalton Varsho has been a letdown, basically traded Gurriel's offense for Varsho's defense, um, which is fine, but that means you gave away Mourinho as part of that trade. I don't think that's entirely a, a fair characterization of the deal. I, I think they see a lot more upside in Dalton Varsho than he's shown so far. He did hit 27 home runs last year, so you know it's not just Gurriel's offense for Varsho's defense. Varsho profiled pretty well offensively last year. He is going through it though. You're right. And he has been one of the biggest culprits in terms of, can you come through with runners in scoring position? He is among the league's worst hitters uh, with runners in scoring position so far this season. It is uh rough going for him. He's hitting 161 when he comes up with runners in scoring position. Now that's not that undersells a little bit because he's taken seven walks in 67 plate appearances with men in scoring position. So he's, he's having some good at bats there, but yeah, the power hasn't been there, you know, quite to the degree that we saw last year. He's probably on pace for, for, you know, 22, 23 home runs 
right now if he played the whole season that's not quite 27 and, and the defense is there but yeah I, I understand that it's a uh, frustrating right now especially as Lourdes Gurriel Jr. hits very well and Gabriel Moreno is a, a defensive highlight night tonight and also kind of hitting close to uh, the 300 mark with his bat to ball skill there uh, a couple other texts um with the last one we'll do before we take a break here because we do have tampa bay rays gm peter bendix on the other side eddie and fort erie uh asks if it's time to put Bo in the cleanup spot and put merrifield in the two spot um maybe that was a question for earlier um whit merrifield has you know did have a, a really long stretch of hitting productively for this team his batting average has come back down to 267 though uh not a high walk guy the the number two spot if we're thinking analytically it's the most important spot in your lineup that that combination of getting up more often and getting up with the table setter in front of you george springer um and then hey kevin kiermeyer has been one of the best hitters and john schneider mentioned saturday he likes him kind of resetting the table for the top of the order in that nine spot um i i think the the hard part with shuffling the batting order right now is that George Springer is not coming out of the leadoff spot and he had maybe the best homestand of anyone short of bow hit over 300 slugged over 500. So maybe you hope that that's coming along for him. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't see a big argument for moving bow to the four spot when there's not really a great option uh, to move up ahead of him. And he, he's so comfortable in, in a high value spot there where he is right now. Uh, thank you for the text. You can keep those coming throughout the week. 590-590. We'll, we'll try to get to as many of them as we can day-to-day here on Jay's Talk Plus, but no promises, uh, and make sure you sign them as well. Right now, we're going to take a break. When we come back, a few minutes in, Arden Zwelling of sportsnet.ca will join us, but pretty excited. What, what, what a guest for, for producer Jeff as a party behind the glass there. First day of Jay's Talk Plus 2023. We'll be joined next by Peter Bendix, general manager, of the Tampa Bay Rays as JSTOC Plus continues on Sportsnet 590 and Sportsnet 360. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to JSTOC Plus. I'm Blake Murphy with you for another hour here. Jay's Talk Plus back today, 10 to 12 weekdays now as Blair and Barker move into your pregame five to seven slot ahead of Jay's games uh, here on Sportsnet 590, the fan and Sportsnet 360. Uh, The Jays dropped four of six on that homestand, lost six of their last seven. They will play Tampa Bay for four starting tonight at 640. Chris Bassett against Trevor Kelly as the opener. For Tampa Bay, you'll get Jose Barrios against Taj Bradley, Yusei Kikuchi against Shane McClanahan, Alec Manoa against Zach Eflin to round that series out. Uh, Trevor Kelly, the opener today, it's expected that Josh Fleming will follow him as the bulk guy of sorts. Tampa Bay Rays, of course, uh, continuing to utilize the opener more and more effectively than just about any franchise they've dealt with a bunch of starting pitching injuries. That's forced them to be uh, even more creative than usual when it comes to their pitching staff. So you will see Trevor Kelly open today, Josh Fleming, uh, the lefty do a little bit of the bulk work. He's uh, thrown 36 innings over nine appearances this year. So this is uh, this is pretty standard for him. Usually get about four innings. Uh, let's dive in on those Tampa Bay rays. They have been off to an historic start 
uh, certainly to start the year now, uh, kicking in at 34 and 14, the best record in Major League Baseball. Joining us to talk about them is Peter Bendix, general manager of the Tampa Bay Rays. Peter, how are you, man? Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Glad to hear that. Uh, Got to ask, your your career, not your career, but the story of Peter Bendix, Major League Baseball executive, kind of started in Toronto. I, I was digging in, and I, I knew that, you know, your your story started with uh, taking a sabermetrics course at Tufts University. Didn't realize that it was a saber conference here in Toronto that a professor took you to that, that really picked up steam. Uh, what do you remember about that? And, and I got to ask, what was your university saber research on? Wow. Yeah, that's uh, that's dating back now quite a few years. I did a research project for a class I took as a freshman at college at Tufts University, and it was a research project about Leo Mazzoni, the great Atlanta Braves pitching coach, and trying to look at what had been kind of uh, called the Mazzoni effect of just seemingly every pitcher with the Atlanta Braves performing much better with them than when they went elsewhere in their career. And I tried to identify whether the pitching coach had, um, you know, an influence on that. And so did a research project on that and um, picked up a little bit of, of steam after I presented at that Sabre conference in Toronto. Uh, that was probably I don't know, maybe almost 20 years ago, actually. Wow. That's, uh, and, and then you've taken the Mazzoni effect and you were like, you know what? That's cool. But what if the Tampa Bay Rays did it with hitters and <laughs> every hitter that comes through Tampa, uh, you know, becomes the best version of themselves. Uh, we're going to talk. I hope to ask you about some of those success stories in a minute. Um, but let's let, let's take a look at this hot start that you guys have been on 34 and 14 best record in the majors top of the AL East, of course. Um how much fun has that been to be a part of it and to see what you guys have been putting together over the years, have this much success early? Yeah, it really has been a tremendous amount of fun when, when things are kind of clicking on all cylinders, it, it's a, it's a lot of fun to watch and to see the success of, of these young players that we believed in and knew had a lot of talent, even though many of them struggled over the last couple of years at different points to see them all kind of become the better version of themselves really all at the same time. That's been really, really heartening to watch. So it is a, a legendarily hot start initially. We've got to go back to the 1800s and our pal Sarah Langs of MLB.com stats is pulling, you know, all, all sorts of different teams you, you forgot existed, like the Wolverines, uh, to, to find the last team that started as well as you guys have started. Now it's a very long season. It's 162 games. You, you've got to take the long view, even with as strong as you guys have started the Orioles, just two and a half back. How do you guys as an organization manage that, you know, the bar was so high and the success was so strong early on, but you still have four and a half more months to, to manage the grind of the major league season. How do how do you guys manage that, you know, emotionally and tactically? You really can't get too high or too low. And it's a cliche in baseball, but it really is true. And our staff has done a fantastic job managing that. And you appreciate what you're seeing. You appreciate when the team is playing so well because you know that that's not going to sustain itself over 162 games. But you also understand that, you know, things happen positively, negatively over the course of a long season. It's our job to manage and react to those things. And a lot of that is trying to stay even keel and trying to appreciate the, the positives, but you don't get too high, you don't get too low. I think the culture that our staff, our manager and coaches have created has allowed for that to happen, which is also something that has enabled our players to kind of grow and thrive as well. 
when it comes to not getting too high, how helpful is it to have an American League East that that's this strong and this competitive? Because even your highest of highs, it's still a, a very, very tough competition uh, to win this division uh, over the next couple of months. How much does that, you know, help and does it take away any of the the shine of the hot start that you guys have had that, you know, there, there is still so much work to be done in the division race. You know, we expect every year that the AL East is going to be the best division in baseball. And we haven't, we haven't been wrong in a while on that. And this year, I think it might even be maybe one of the strongest versions of itself. And we love that. We really relish the opportunity to compete against the very best in baseball day in and day out. You know, this year, the schedule's a little different. So we're not beating up on each other quite as much as we were before, but it's still more games against the division opponents than anybody else. And you know that the, uh, the division is full of talent. It's full of really well-run teams with a lot of resources and a drive to try to win each and every year. So competing against that, you're, you're holding yourself to that high bar every year, and that makes it a lot of fun. So you guys have been able to do this as well, despite some some pretty tough losses on the starting pitching side. Uh, Jeffrey Springs, Tyler Glasnow, now Drew Rasmussen. When you look at the injuries that you have had on the pitching side, I want to talk about how you guys have, have maintained through that and found the pitching depth around it. But um, is there anything that you, that you guys look at as in terms of trend with the, with the pitching injuries or, or something that's, you know, caught your eye or, or been a red flag as you've lost a couple guys here in the early going? You know, we, we are constantly looking at that. There's a lot of injuries across the game right now. It seems like there's more and more every year. I don't know if that's actually true. We've certainly been hit by it, but a lot of other teams have been hit by it as well. And we know that injuries are a part of the game. It's a part of throwing a baseball 95 miles an hour is an unnatural act. <laughs> and so that's, you know, I, I'm hoping that in five years and 10 years, we can look back and say, man, we were all idiots about how we, you know, prevented pitcher injuries now. And I'm hoping we get a lot better at that. But in the meantime, you know, you, you understand it's part of the game. It stinks. It's really hard, especially for some of these guys that have been putting in so much time and effort to get to where they are only to then get hurt. It's really frustrating. But we know that that's something that every team deals with. We know that depth is a really important part of any team's success, especially our success. And we kind of have that next man up mantra when somebody gets an opportunity Regardless of the reason for that opportunity, they have to be ready. It, it really does feel like the next man up extends further for you. Like it, sometimes it feels like you guys have a 50 man roster when everyone else has a 40 man roster um, because you have been able to, you know, develop that depth. How much does it help when, when you're kind of in triage mode and you're down to, you know, maybe three, three starters and a, and a bulk guy or something like that? The fact that you guys as an organization have put a premium on guys who can flex in different roles, give you multiple innings out of the bullpen or work as a starter and a reliever. How much does that flexibility through your pitching ranks help manage at a time like this? That's really important. The flexibility throughout our roster is really important. And I think it's really a testament to our staff, our coaches that they've been able to, to get the buy-in from the players. And it's a testament to the players that they're willing to buy in and understand that we might do something a little bit differently than another team, but the point is to win games, to put them in position to be successful. And that's all we're trying to do at the end of the day. And so that trust from the players, that, that trust that the, you know, our coaching staff, our manager has built with the players is really important. And it's something that we think is, is ultimately helpful for the player. 
because we're really trying to put them in a position where they're going to have the most success, where we're not necessarily asking too much from them and kind of playing to their strengths as much as possible. And in doing that, if we can put the players in the best position to succeed, then ultimately we're putting the team in the best position to win games. And that's what we're trying to do at the end of the day. One of the next men up that you've had to rely on early on here is one of your top prospects. Uh, you know, some places have him ranked as your top prospect, some as number two. But Taj Bradley, 22-year-old right-hander, he only had half a season, not even half a season at AAA entering this year. And you guys have had to use him a handful of times. We'll see him tomorrow, I think, against the Blue Jays. Um, how do you weigh that trade-off between long-term development for a prospect like Bradley but a team that's very firmly in win now mode at the major league level? You know, that's a great question. I think that's something that we're often, often trying to answer on the fly, whether it's with somebody like Taj, whether it's with other players that might be, you know, struggling at the major league level and trying to find their footing while we're also trying to win in, in such a competitive division with Taj. When we brought him up earlier in the season, I think he would probably be the first to, to admit it was a little early in his development. As you said, he didn't even have very much experience in AAA. He's just 22. He's incredibly talented, and he's mature beyond his years, but he also still has development in front of him. And so he had a lot of success in a couple of starts when we needed him earlier in the year. Once our rotation stabilized a little bit, we were able to get him a little more seasoning in AAA we gave him kind of a, a, what we'd like him to work on and get in more of a, a normal schedule where he can pitch on day five, which is what he's going to need to do at the major league level. He was able to have a few more of those starts in AAA, and now we've been able to pivot back to him with hopefully a little bit more underneath him. But he's the kind of human, he's the kind of person that you, are, you bet on. I mean, the way that he, his competitiveness, his maturity, his work ethic, all of these things, they are absolutely top of the scale. And then you combine that with the natural talent that he has, and he doesn't come across as a normal 22-year-old. So excited to see what he can do You know, with a, a little bit more of a, a runway here at the Major League level. Um, he has all the tools in the world to be a top-of-the-rotation pitcher. Peter, on the, the position player side, with what you we, we talked about some of, you know, how you're able to maintain the pitching depth and you the term culture had come up a little bit and talking about that and talking about the, the hot start and how you keep everyone even keeled. How much of a cultural cultural element plays into the success you've had finding position players and getting the best versions of themselves out of them? Because like you just said, with some of the pitching guys who, who have bounced around and you managed to find a spot for them, you know, you look at a guy like Harold Ramirez, who was at one point in this Blue Jays organization and spent time in a few different organizations on his way up or someone like Luke Rayleigh, who kind of comes out of nowhere here in, in his third stop. Um, how much is the, does the organizational culture contribute to your ability to, you know, kind of find these guys at the fringes and get the best versions of themselves to the major league level? I think that's exactly it. The culture, the coaching, that is something that we really pride ourselves on. And of course, the player needs to be talented in the first place, right? But if we can find talented players who maybe for one reason or another haven't fully established themselves in the big leagues, those are the types of players that we need to find. We don't necessarily have the resources to be able to acquire the players who are already established stars. But if we can find talented players who haven't quite found their footing yet and bring them in with our coaching staff and our culture that hopefully allows them to just kind of be themselves, to be free and easy and loose, 
and to not worry too much about the things they can't do and instead focus on the things they can do. And our coaches have done a phenomenal job of establishing this culture of, like I said before, putting players in a position to succeed, playing to their strengths, earning trust and buy-in, and then having the right notes for the player of, you know, maybe try something like this or maybe work on that. Whatever it might be, the, the little coaching tidbits, once that relationship is built, it's easier to have that, that buy-in to try something. And so when you have a player like a Luke Rayleigh, he's a great example, extremely talented player, much more talented than I think he might look at first glance, but also was swinging and missing a little bit too much. But he's right on the cusp of being able to play with, with a lot of different tools and to see the development that he was able to have bet- between last year and this year, to see him working with our hitting coach, Chad Matola, our whole hitting group, on trying to just maximize his strengths, it really puts him in a position to succeed. Harold Ramirez is the same thing, where we're not focused on what he can't do, we're focused on what he can do. And I think that really goes a long way towards instilling confidence in the player, allowing them to have their natural talent just kind of play. That's yeah, it's interesting to hear that the focus on what you can do instead of what you can't do, because, you know, I, I've covered the Raptors for a number of years in a different in addition to the Blue Jays. And that's something that comes up a lot with their player development and, and ability to find guys uh, lower in the draft that then maybe you thought and turn them into something. Um, speaking of Toronto sports, before I let you go, Peter, bit of a experience question for you. You are one of the younger general managers and, and VPs of baseball ops in baseball and in, in North American pro sports. The Toronto scene has, you know, the Raptors have one of the youngest general managers in basketball with Bobby Webster. They just let go um, one of the youngest general managers in the NHL and Kyle Dubas. What has your experience been like being on the younger end as an executive? And just how fast does the experience pick up for you once you get into that position? You know, it's a fascinating question. I think that, so I've, I've worked for the Rays for my entire professional career. This is my 16th season. I've been fortunate enough to work with Eric Neander, our president of baseball operations for that entire time and really work closely with him and develop a wonderful personal and professional relationship with him. And there's a lot of other people here who have been here for a long time, right? Our manager, Kevin Cash, I believe this is his ninth season. Um, You know, we've had the same ownership, the same leadership for that entire time. So in some ways I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm much more experienced than someone else my age just because I I have those relationships built with with the people here. And in other ways, you know, I feel like I have a lot to learn. And just getting these opportunities to work with these people, to observe how others have done it in the past, there's plenty of people I've worked with here who have gone on to lead other franchises, right? I mean, James Click is, is with the Blue Jays right now, and he has a World Series ring as a general manager. And got to work alongside him for 10 plus years. Heim Bloom is with the Red Sox now, and I got to work with him for a long time. We just played the Milwaukee Brewers, and Matt Arnold is their top executive right now. And he was one of the first people who kind of took me out scouting and and showed me the ropes there a little bit. And so, you know, Andrew Friedman is with the Dodgers, and he kind of built our original foundation of success dating back almost 20 years getting to work closely with all these people. And I'm sure I'm forgetting some along the way, see how they manage people, see how they treat people and create this culture and really try to go about winning in in the right way. That is tremendous to, to be able to witness firsthand and then to try to emulate myself. 
That's great to hear. It's been fascinating to, to follow your journey, Peter. I appreciate you taking the time out today. And just remember, it all started in Toronto, man. Don't, don't forget that. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Peter Bendix, general manager and senior VP of bas- baseball operations for the Tampa Bay Rays. Not basketball ops. Uh, switching, switching roles here. Uh, Arden Zwelling is to my left now. What's going on, man? Trying to get plugged in here. What's yeah, that? yeah. You don't. You don't even need TV? it. Yeah, we're on TV oh, as wicked. well. Yeah, you don't. What's you up? don't need the headphones if you don't need. You All can right. hear me fine. So, uh, thanks for joining me, Arden's Welling of, of Sportsnet of Sportsnet.ca. Uh, how are you doing, man? Uh, great TV work this weekend. Uh, nice weekend down at the ballpark, but not the best of uh, results, eh? I had a great time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, those are uh, super competitive, interesting, intriguing games. I loved it. Straight back through the New York series too. Yeah, as an entertainment product. That was a great week of baseball. Yeah, I have, uh, I mean, obviously I'm watching every game anyway from, you know, whether in fan drive time role or this role, but I've done, I think, eight now for color commentary alongside Ben Wagner, and three of them have gone extra innings, and I think five of them have gone over three hours. I am just not experiencing this shorter <laughs> version of baseball that I've been uh, I've been told about. How are you enjoying uh, doing more of the, the sideline stuff? And, I mean, it's great reporting, and I know you mix it the Blue Jay Central stuff too, but a bit of a change in role for you this year. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been cool. Like you said, it's been a learning curve. It's been wicked just working with everybody who's on this broadcast. I'm just kind of trying to meet the standard that they set, which is already – very high. I don't want it to dip when I uh, when I go on. Like, there's so many talented and passionate people who work on it from, like, the ones that obviously that you see every night, like your Dan Schulmans and Hazel Mays and Buck Martinez's and Joe Siddles, but the people behind the scenes as well. When you get down to, like, you know Chris Black really well, obviously, and Doug Walton's another, um, you know, really talented, passionate uh, producer there. Troy Clara directs the broadcasts. Like, it's cool. I, I notice those little things now as a casual viewer when I'm just even watching them at home that maybe I didn't before. Right. You think about like Jordan Romano on the mound trying to save a game and the shot starts zoomed in on a fan standing in the outfield and then the focus pulls out and shifts and all of a sudden Romano comes into focus and he's seething on the mound like little artistic things like that that tell a story. I never noticed before, but now kind of being behind the curtain and also like the restraint of a Dan Schulman in that moment to not say anything. And to let that moment speak for itself, all these little things, intricacies that I noticed now, it's been really cool being behind the scenes and getting to look under the hood at how that all comes together. You've done some color on on radio as well. And honestly, that the hardest part that I, I've found is in those big moments, just like, okay, that's a, that's this is Ben Wagner's call. I'll have my moment. But like in the mo- a big home run or something like that, just no reaction. <laughs> that's the the toughest part. You're also, by, by nature of doing more of the sideline stuff, you're proximity to the dugout is changes significantly. And I know when you're on the writer side, like we could only dream of, of being yeah. that close, right. And getting some of that chatter and, and seeing some of those things, how much extra are you able to glean from the, uh, the way this team operates and what the emotion of this team is being that close more regularly? Well, yesterday was a really great example because like I can't, so I can talk back to the guys in the truck via my microphone. So I can talk to like guys like Chris Black and Doug Walton and, and kind of let them know if, oh, hey, I got something. Maybe you want to get me in here or whatever. I, I try to be pretty light on the mic. Those guys have a lot going on. But in extras yesterday, I was, get a camera in the dugout. You got to get a camera in the dugout right now. Just trust me because I saw you say Kikuchi. <laughs> well, actually, so what I first saw, honestly, was Chris Bassett and Alec Manoa just start cracking up. 
And I, th- it, it was just strange. It was unusual, right? And they just started laughing hysterically. And I was like, what is happening here? And I started looking over, trying to see what's going on. And like a phoenix from the ashes, <laughs> Yusei Kikuchi comes up the stairs from the tunnel because he was back getting his spikes on and comes up and starts running mock sprints <laughs> in the dugout. Starts getting the oven mitt on. He's looking for a helmet. He's getting tips from Danny Jansen. Like, and Manoa and Chris Bassett are like all over Gil Kim. Like, is this happening? Like, are we doing this right now? And that was a cool moment. So little things like that. I get to pick up on, which is really neat. I was, I mean, obviously that's a disappointing outcome, regardless giving up a five run 11th inning. But if that had been a tie game or a one run game, we were going to get to see it. You say Kikuchi was coming in to pinch run for Alejandro Kirk. It looked like, and then we were in a scenario. I, I don't know. I mean, if you asked John Schneider after anything, but we, if that scenario played out, they would lose the DH and also Dalton Varsho would have been into catch. Yes. Varsho would have caught, and there were actually scenarios prior to that in the game where they were thinking about having Dalton Varsho catch. Like, he is a break glass in case of emergency catcher, and that was the scenario that played out yesterday because, honestly, Santiago Espinal was not available. Mm-hmm. And the Blue Jays rolled the dice and said, let's try to get through today without Espinal being available because they're hopeful that he can avoid the IL with a couple days just to let that hamstring thing settle down. Otto Lopez was in the clubhouse yesterday. I was chatting with him. Like, he's in good spirits. He could have played yesterday, but they thought, all right, let's not make the move. Let's see if we can get through it. Of course, that's when you end up with the extra inning game and you're of making course. all these moves. So. It, there was a part of me that was like, okay, if you say Kikuchi's coming in to run in, what was it, the bomb of the 10th? Right? 11th. The 11th. Been, yeah. Bomb the 11th. All right. Right now, I'm going to need the Blue Jays to tie this game and for this to go 12. That's what I'm going to need because I'm going to need to see how this plays out. Yeah. Is you say Kikuchi going to play left field? Is that what's about to happen here? Because the, you were getting to that point. You were, yeah, you were almost out of guys. And I guess the one thing you could have done is you could have worked some sort of double switch to avoid it for a little bit, but not like, <laughs> and then at, at, at a certain point in that game, a pitcher's got a hit also, which is, uh, I don't know who the, the designated hitter among pitchers would be. I mean, Bassett probably has the most recent experience hitting uh, before the National League got the DH. Yeah, Bassett. Um, Gosman also would have hit prior mm-hmm. in his career, but obviously he started the game. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe it's Kikuchi again, though. I I think they went with Kikuchi to run, like, first of all, because, like, and you hear people say this, like, he's actually a really good athlete, mm-hmm. right? And he is actually quite instinctual and just moves very gracefully on the field. Uh, but I think also because he is the quote unquote de facto number five starters. So right. like if you're putting a starting pitcher in that scenario, you don't want to be a Bassett and to risk an injury. You don't want to be somebody who you were counting on at the front of your rotation. Like you kind of mitigate the risk in that way as well. Yeah. And then I guess the question just comes down to, well, Thomas Hatch is probably the next man down to the minors. And you know, is he, is he, Slower, less athletic than you. So do you even know? Because it's a minor league reliever. Uh, I guess that's probably the only other option then. I, I guess it just, we, we have to take a break in a bit. So I'll hit you with a couple quick ones here. Um, are you are we anticipating Thomas Hatch back to back to AAA as Adam Simber uh, nears a, re, a return here? The plan on the weekend was to activate Simber Monday okay. in Tampa. And I, I think they got close to activating Simber on Sunday just because the bullpen was so stretched. And mm-hmm. I mean, Jordan Romano, Eric Swanson were red. On Sunday, so uh, again, Blue Jays kind of rolled the dice to try to get through that game. So I would expect that Hatch is the guy who goes the other way uh, if and when Simber's activated 
on Monday, which is today. Today yes. is literally Monday. So it is be today. today. Um, and the word yesterday was, and maybe you you heard more after the game, that Otto Lopez would go to Tampa with them just in case uh, on the Santiago Espinal front. This is a purely opinion question, not a reporting question. Would you, let's say Santiago Espinal is good to go today. Given the way this season has gone for him so far, the way, the, the fact that he could probably use some additional plate appearances, the fact that in the couple leverage spots he was used as a runner, uh, you know, getting doubled off at second base as a pinch runner and then walking yesterday, but then being thrown out at second base, sliding over the base. Is there any chance that Kevin Biggio could go down for a get right stint and Aldo Lopez maybe sticks around or is Biggio pretty like solidified no matter how it's going? I was trying to think who you're talking about. I was like, oh, this is a Biggio question in disguise yeah. is what this is. Yeah, it was sneaking it in there. <laughs> I, I think... Yeah, meritocratically, you could make that case, mm-hmm. right? Like the, the Lopez's bat has heated up a bit at AAA, and I was talking to him yesterday. He had a miserable April, and he was kind of confounded. The whole by team it. did. Though. Like, they were getting rained out two, three times a week. I know, and so that's part of it is the weather, right? And they were playing inconsistently, and it's just cold as hell in Buffalo. But Otto Lopez in particular, who had such a strong spring, strong WBC, he was telling me, man, I was doing everything the same in April and I just wasn't seeing the contact. He really had to kind of battle the mental side of it in April and he's come out of it recently and he's feeling a lot better at the plate. Obviously um, that you kind of laid out some of the, you know, mistakes we've seen from Calvin Biggio and the contributions or lack thereof from him recently. Like uh, sure. You could definitely kind of futz around with the edge of the roster there. I don't know that bringing in an Otto Lopez for a Kevin Biggio is going to help Dalton Varsho, who has the most played appearances of anyone on this team with runners in scoring position, come through with a hit in that spot. I don't know if it's going to help George Springer not have, like, what, two extra base hits through the first six weeks of the season. I don't know that that's going to help Vladimir Guerrero Jr. hit a home run or Alec Manoa find his slider. Like, we can do that, like, major and the minor stuff, and then that's kind of what this show is, right? Yeah. But I, I don't think that's going to address the more fundamental issues that are leading to the Blue Jays losing more than they're winning right now. Yeah, certainly it's not. You're tweaking at the margins and stretching for something you can change for, even if it's just for the sake of change, like, hey, Danny Jansen's going to catch Alec Manoa on Saturday and see what happens there. Just the fifth time over three years, by the way, that happened. We are going to talk that big macro stuff, though. We're going to take a break first. Uh, Arden Welling is going to stay with us in studio as Jstock Plus continues on Sports at 590, The Fan, and Sports at 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy, Arden Zwelling of Sportsnet Television and Sportsnet.ca. To my left, sticking with us in studio here. Um... We did some of the micro stuff before the break there because we had just a couple minutes. It was like, yeah, let's do the Kevin Biggio of it all and the Thomas Hatch and Adam Simber of it all. You didn't even get to Ernie Clement. No, I mean, we, you got to clear a 40-man <laughs> spot before I can I can start talking about Ernie Clement. Um, and poor Spencer Horowitz just needs to find a position he can play Yeah, before he gets the the nod anywhere. But I think we'll see Horowitz at some point this year if there's like a Brandon Belt knee inflammation yeah. thing, right? Or uh, If the Vlad like, thing had been worse earlier this yeah, week, yeah. Knock on wood, like a Vlad issue. Yeah, I think that's when you'd see Spencer Horowitz. I think you hope you see more than what? He's got two home runs this year. Yeah, he had level. one heading into the weekend. I, yeah. I didn't get a chance to look, but yeah, maybe he had a second. It's it's a great batting average and some doubles, <laughs> but you know, we've seen a lot of first base prospects over the years who 
without the home runs, the you know the bar's just so high at that position. Yeah, and the thing that you hear about Spencer Horowitz is he gives you a great plate appearance, and that he's like really meticulous, good swing decisions. He really doesn't take one off over 600 in a year. So that's what developers love about him. With Clement, I mean, he's just been on the heater of all heaters, <laughs> but he comes out of a game the other day with a hamstring issue. Mm. So that you got to get that cleared up. And like you said, there would need to be a 40-man spot. And if even, like I was kind of thinking about this when you brought it up. So if you swap out somebody for Kevin Biggio on the bench, okay, somebody else can sit on the bench all the time. Because mm-hmm. Kevin Biggio sits on the bench for like five out of six games. So it's you can make that move if people, but I don't know that that's really addressing the big issues here. Yeah, the big issues, which by the way, are that since May the eighth, the Toronto Blue Jays are dead last in weighted runs created plus with runners in scoring position. So that's kind of let's let's adjust for a bunch of factors so everyone's on the same scale since May eighth. Everyone on the same scale. Nobody is worse hitting with runners in scoring position, then the Toronto Blue Jays, you can go back and look at a larger sample and it's still not very encouraging on the season. They're a bottom 10 team with runners in scoring position. Their 235 batting average is 24th on the season with runners in scoring position. This is a team that hasn't been as punchy offensively as we expected and certainly not as as punchy as last year offensively, but this is a pretty dramatic situation when it comes to runners in scoring position. Are, are you seeing anything at a high level beyond just, man, they're tight right now and, and gripping those bats? Well, weren't we having this conversation? Yes. The very first week of Blue Jays Talk Plus last year? Weren't we sitting here 365 <laughs> days ago, right? And I, I pulled the numbers the other day, and it was, you know, through the first two months of the season, the Blue Jays were the worst team in baseball with runners in scoring position, and through the final four, they were the best. Um, and a lot of that, I think, came down to some process stuff coming around that... Uh, just hadn't been for the first couple of months. The process indicators this year, from what I've looked at, aren't as strong as last year, but there still are some things you can hang your hat on when you think about like a high hard hit rate, uh, a high line drive rate, a low ground ball rate. You hope that that process will come around um, and will start to bear results going forward. Uh, you think about some of the hard hit balls from the Blue Jays yesterday, the Kevin Kiermaier d- grounded into a double play, the one that George Springer grounded into a double play on as well. I mean, the Blue Jays are putting the ball in play at a high rate of speed, and that should lead to good outcomes over time. Um, I think the swing decisions have been hurting them a little bit for the last couple of weeks. So, like, those are the two things, like, I really bet on going forward is, like, swing positions, swing decisions and are you hitting the ball hard? So, swing at balls or strikes and do you swing really hard and put it to play at high rate of speed when you do uh and i think the swing decisions have been not great over the last couple of weeks and i think that's where the blue jays are getting hurt the most and with runners in scoring position you had mentioned before the break that the dalton varsho is one of the biggest offenders for lack of a better term he's hitting down around 150 with runners in scoring position taking some walks but really not done a lot of damage uh the the 10th inning 0-0 walk off from a couple weeks ago uh notwithstanding Matt Chapman another guy who despite tremendous numbers on the year and like league best short of Aaron Judge batted ball stuff struggling with runners in scoring position um is there anything you're seeing at an individual level with, with either of those guys or anyone on on the team it, it really does seem like Bo Bichette's kind of the only guy getting it done in those situations right now yeah with Chapman it's been a weird month for him it just hasn't been the same uh shape of contact I guess is the first month and man it, his April could have been even better 
than it was. We did this on the broadcast all the time. The amount of balls he hit, 400 feet. No, expected home runs versus actual home runs, expected slugging versus actual slugging. Somehow the best hitter in baseball was also the unluckiest. (laughs) You're right. A bunch of those were just doubles. It could have been homers. A bunch of them were outs as well. And also a lot of those doubles that didn't score runners from first base because Kirk and Belt were hitting in front of them. So so often I, I know RBI as a stat isn't something we we use tremendously often to evaluate players anymore, but the RBI total could be four or five higher easily as well. Totally. So and you look at some of the Blue Jays issues with slug this year, like they haven't had as much power. If the Blue Jays get some better home run luck on some of those really hard and far hit balls in April, the numbers probably look a bit better. So we're still dealing with some like what is signal, what is noise early in the season. Right now with Varsho, there's very clearly a hole in his swing Mm -hmm. uh, up generally, but specifically up and in. And that's where he's getting attacked consistently. And he has been making adjustments to not do damage against those pitches, honestly, because I just don't know that Dalton Varsho's swing is going to allow him to barrel pitches up and in. As a left-handed hitter, I think he needs to lay off of them. I think he needs to say to a pitcher, if you can locate that pitch three times, uh, I'm going to tip my hat. I'm going to go back to the dugout with my strikeout. But it's pretty rare that you find like the DeGrom level dudes who can locate in a very precise spot three times. You need to get to the mistake to the time that that pitcher is targeting that up and in and actually leaves it a bit lower and fat. Like that's when Dalton Varsho gets to his power, hitting mistakes. That's how he hit 27 homers last year i just think he's been helping pitchers out a little bit with going after those pitches expanding up right even the ones that could be called balls because they're a little bit above the zone he's swinging and missing at those i see that from him and with i mean you didn't mention vladimir Guerrero jr but he's another guy struggling with runners in scoring position he looks in between right now you're seeing him uh swing at like chase the pitch he should take and uh take the pitch that he should hammer and I think you're seeing the swing looking pretty big right now as well. So we've seen that from him in the past. He's been able to get out of it in the past. You trust that he can do it again because uh, he's Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Yeah, especially against the Dean Kramers and Austin Boats of the world. Every pitcher in the majors has some stuff, but you know, an 89-mile-an-hour cutter that catches a bunch of the yeah. plate should not be what you're swinging through. Um, and just to, to let anyone know, the swing adjustment you mentioned with Dalton Varsho, and yeah, the swing decisions are, are at a lot of at the heart of this, but you did have a great piece two weeks ago at sportsnet.ca about the swing adjustments Dalton Varsho uh, had made and has made. Uh, you know, you need to make better swing decisions within that, but if anyone's interested to read more about that, they can go to sportsnet.ca, your author page there. Um, with respect to Vlad, those swing decisions, uh, a big part of it. Do you take any encouragement from the fact that his average launch angle is up a lot this year? Like I, I, I was pulling the numbers earlier and, you know, not recently, but the six-week sample or seven-week sample we have of the season so far, almost all his batted ball stuff looks identical to last year. His walk rate and strikeout rate are almost exactly the same. Uh, as a season ago, the one thing that's changed is he is lifting the ball a little bit more. And that's something that we had wanted to see from him. Um, fewer of those, you know, 110 mile an hour ground balls right to the shortstop and stuff. Um, obviously, the swing decisions are going to dictate Vlad's success. We saw that in, in 2021. That was such a huge part of, of his 48 home run season. Um, but when he does hit the ball, do you do you see something encouraging with the fact that he has been able to lift it more? It's encouraging that the Blue Jays as a team hit the ball really hard, right? Because mm-hmm. that ought to lead to good success, you know, over time. I really simplify it to like hitting the ball hard and making good swing decisions. So I think they have half of that. 
I think the other half of it hasn't been great over the last couple of weeks. Um, talking to people just around the team the last few days, you hear the word pressing come up a lot. You hear the word trying to be the hero come up a lot, like trying to be the guy who gets us out of this. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has admitted to doing that too often mm-hmm. in the past, uh, and I, I haven't asked him if he's doing that right now, but I do think that people are seeing him look like he is doing that. Uh, you know, the Blue Jays had a hitters meeting on Saturday during the uh, this this Orioles series, and that's a little unusual. Like, they don't do that in the middle of series very often. Typically, they do all their advance work first game of the series and then let guys just go about their adjustments, go about their work, but they all met in the batting cages at Rogers Center at 12 noon on Saturday, partly to go over Grayson Rodriguez because nobody had uh, played appearance against him, but they also would have gone over him in the advance on Friday, remember, as well. Part of it was to show video of what guys are doing when they're at their best. Like, Blue Jays hitting coaches wanted to remind their hitters of, here's, like, when you're successful, here's how you look, and here's what you're doing, and just trust this approach. Like, here's what you need to get back to. And my understanding is that about halfway through that meeting, it was no longer your Dave Hudgens and Guillermo Martinez and um, Don Mattingly talking. It was Brandon Belt talking and Matt Chapman talking, George Springer. Like, it was the guys who have been through this before because all three of those guys have been on really good teams before that have gone through slumps and been in ruts. They know what it takes to get out of it. They need the urgent. They know the urgency you need to get out of it, but not the panic to get out of it. So... I, I think that like there is a lot of work going on behind the scenes to make sure this doesn't snowball in a very competitive AL East. We'll see if they can turn it around. I mean, Vlad and Bo went through it last year a little bit too, right? Yeah. Like, and, and those guys are you know experienced enough now that they could be voices in those situations as well. I know different leadership styles and and everything. Um, you mentioned the you know urgency but not panicking what what role does john schneider play in that and what have you seen from him in terms of the levers he he is and isn't pulling to try to keep everything online i know there's a the pretty dramatic quote after the game last night of enough is enough and that was the buzzy tweet even though there was you know obviously a paragraph some other context yeah there was some <laughs> other context but yeah. th- but that's what people are gonna are gonna look at um what how what have you made a, of john schneider's role in this and managing through this kind of two three week lull I think he just has to trust the talent on his team. I mean, he addressed the team after the game yesterday. I don't know if you want to call that a team meeting. Everybody was going to be in the clubhouse anyway because they're they're packing for Tampa. So I don't think that that's like a big, um, you know, special event or anything. But he did talk to the team yesterday and talk to them about just trusting themselves and just enough is enough and understanding that they haven't played well enough over the last week. And look, they haven't, right? They, They really have not performed well enough over the last week to be the team that they believe that they are capable of. And if they do the last week 19 more times, because there's 19 more weeks in the season, it's going to be a really miserable season. But the last week is less than 5% of their year, right? So you want to keep that context as well. Like you want to keep that in mind as well. So, um, you know, the the, the tough moment for John Schneider this weekend was obviously the, the, with Alec Manoa going Mm -hmm. to the mound when, um, you know, Pete Walker had already been out there and not realizing that in the moment, that's a mistake. That's a blunder. John Schneider owned up to it afterwards. It's a bad look when you are preaching attention to detail and you are preaching, like paying attention to the little things and being focused and intent with everything that you're doing. Uh, you know, when, when that message is coming top down and then something like that happens, it's not great 
it wasn't consequential. Tim Meza was already ready. Alec Manoa was getting to the end of his outing. Tim Meza came in and got the out. That's not why the Blue Jays lost the game, but that was like the the tough moment for him this weekend. So it really is the case with this whole team. Like nothing is firing on all cylinders right now. Yeah, and it is one of those things that quote unquote does happen. Don Mattingly had done that before as a manager as well. That kind of stuff does happen. And and you do wonder a little bit, you know, you mentioned it, Mesa got out of that spot, but, you know, you wonder if there's a cascading effect where that was Mesa's third time pitching in four days. And then so he's probably or, or potentially red for Sunday or at least a dark yellow. And then, you know, he only pitches to the one guy. And then Richards comes in and ends up struggling a little bit. And then Swanson comes in and he's been overused of late and has a rough go. Jimmy Garcia ends up being needed in that game after Romano's asked to do the four-out save. And then he's a little fatigued. These these little things really do matter. And I know it can sound, you know, maybe too micro sometimes to focus in on a, on a managerial move like that or getting thrown out, getting picked off at first base in a, in a high leverage spot like Whit Merrifield, who's had a good start to the season, did on the weekend. Um, but these little things not only matter in the moment, but they can cascade a little bit uh, as well. From the bullpen side, um, this is, you know, a pretty overworked bullpen over the course of, of this week, especially in leverage spots. Um, one bright spot, just because I would like to sprinkle in a little bit of positivity in here, a guy you've followed and written about for a really long time, and Nate Pearson, I, I know he gave up the the zombie runner to score on that Cedric Mullins single in the 10th yesterday, but gave the team two good innings, three strikeouts, no walks. You look at his numbers on the season so far, you dive into some of the pitch stuff. He's been pretty impressive. Are you seeing what the Jays had hoped to see from Nate Pearson as a major league reliever right now? As a major league reliever. Yeah, the Blue Jays hoped that he would be throwing 180 innings yeah. as a starter. They hoped that he would be Alec Manoa's 2022. Yeah, that might be uh, that might be behind yeah, us now. Yeah, I think we're probably past that at this point. But th- this has been the hope for this year, absolutely, was that he would trust his fastball, he would trust it on the plate, he would throw strikes, uh, and that's what that's been the biggest thing for him, honestly, is just the consistency with the heater. You mentioned the curveball. It's a great weapon for him. He'd started developing it late last year, took it to the winter league over the off season. It's a lot different from the curveball he used to throw, which is like that mid seventies rainbow kind of curve. This is more of a hard spike. Get on you curveball, but it spins a hell, a hell of a lot moves a lot. It's a really effective weapon for him, but when he's just pumping 99, 100 mile per hour cheese, I mean, he doesn't need it that often. He needs it just often enough. So he looks great and confident and healthy on the mound. I think he's ready for more leverage scenarios. Like to your point, John Schneider is just burning through his leverage options right now at a truly unsustainable rate. Jimmy Garcia in yesterday's ball game, that was four you know pitching for his fourth time in the last five days and six of the last eight off the top of my head it's like you probably have it in front of you but something like that i mean he's just being overused he still comes in throwing 96 97 but it's not going to be as well located when you're pitching every day he's not going to be as fine as he needs to be eric swanson as well a guy who's on pace for like 78 79 appearances this year i don't think that's going to happen you know you need to ease off of these guys romano being asked to get 
four out, five out saves regularly. That's not sustainable. I mentioned earlier in the show, only Liam Hendricks and Scott Barlow have been asked to do that more often than Romano since he took over the closer role in 2021. Right. Tim Meza is a guy who you half trust in leverage because you trust him against lefties, but you don't want to insert him into a spot where with the three batter minimum, you're risking him come up against a, a tough righty because you don't love that matchup. So he, He's almost become a reliever that you pencil in for days that Manoa and Barrios are starting because those are days an opponent is going to stack a lot of lefties in the line. We saw the Orioles go seven against Manoa between their lefties and switch hitters. Um, yeah, I mean, Mazes trusted if it's a Manoa or Barrios day, and otherwise there's probably not going to be a spot for him. Exactly. So you've got three and a half guys who you are trusting in leverage and overusing in leverage right now. So I think John Schneider needs another option. I think Nate Pearson could be that option right now. I think the Blue Jays hope Chad Green will be that option sometime in the second half of the season. I think they need at the deadline to go get another option, at least one, if not two. They need to upgrade the bench as well. But if we had sat here... Mm -hmm in spring training and said, what are the Blue Jays going to need to do at the trade deadline? And we said, they're going to need to get high leverage relief and bench health because that's what every competitive team needs at the deadline. This is why I love having you on, especially at the end of the show. It's almost word for word what I said at the start of the oh. show to a text line <laughs> question is like, yeah, the back end of the bullpen, shocker. In spring, we were talking about it. Yeah. In the offseason, we were talking about it. And guess when we'll be talking about it again? The week leading into July 31st. Uh, when they get, they can do that. And, you know, I mentioned Liam Hendricks earlier. Hey, he's uh, he's almost back and there are going to be no shortage of bad teams. Now the question becomes, are they shopping in the Adam Simber 2021 or Anthony Bass 2022 piles, or are they, you know, finally going to make a move for someone at the, at the very back end uh, of that bullpen? I, I guess, you know, we'll see if Adam Simber's activated today given how he was pitching before, probably not anywhere close to the the leverage trust right now, right? No, they're going to want to ease him in. I think he will be activated today, just like on the weekend. He threw a bullpen, threw a side, like everything felt good. He's been dealing with this rhomboid thing like since spring. Um, Adam Simber was really ahead of the curve because he uh, had his rhomboid issue in spring. He also had that like crazy sickness that's been going mm, through the That everyone clubhouse. else has had, yeah. He had that in spring. He was an early adopter of this crazy <laughs> flu and like lost 10 pounds. Adam Simmer, not a guy who can lose mm. 10 pounds. He's been working very hard to get it back on. So, I, yeah, he's your fifth, sixth inning. You feel good about bringing him in with runners on, getting a ground ball. Obviously great against righties. Try to keep him away from lefties guy, but... Yeah, he's not somebody that you're trying to give a clean inning in the eighth, trying to protect a one-run lead against the heart of the order. Um, your rhomboids doing fine? They feel good. Yeah, yeah they feel yeah. all right. Back's good. Good. Yeah. Uh, Chris Bassett on the mound tonight. The The Tampa Bay Rays are going to go with Trevor Kelly as an opener. Josh Fleming expected as the bulk guy. Uh, rest of the series, Jose Barrios against Taj Bradley. Yusei Kikuchi against Shane McClanahan. Alec Manoa against Zach Eflin. We only have about a minute left here, Arden, but what's the number one thing you're looking for from the Jays in this four-game series to let you know, hey, things are, are maybe turning a bit of a corner here? They just need a big swing, right? They just need, that's, they've been one big swing away all week. These are all competitive games they've been in. They've all been, yeah, they're doing the same thing again, Blake. Like, yeah. And they're one swing from these not even being extra inning games, right? It comes, it happens one extra single with, you know, one of those ground into double plays yesterday sneaks through and you're not going to extras or, or one big swing Saturday clears the fence and you're not going to extras. They're not far off, even though the one in six week 
certainly feels like it. They're, you know, Vlad's not having the season people expect from him. They're not hitting with runners in scoring position. They're constantly playing tight leverage games. Like, this is the same stuff we were talking about last May. So I'd be looking for them to come out of it in the same way they did last year. Yeah, let's hope it turns around. June and July, they were the best hitting team in baseball with runners in scoring position. Then, of course, uh, once they made the pitching change or the managerial change in July, they they really took off record-wise. Arden Zwelling. Thanks so much for taking the time out, man, and joining us. Anytime. Really appreciate it. Thank you to Keegan Matheson and Rays GM Peter Bendix, who joined us earlier. Jeff Azaparty, Connor Lamont, Jennifer Rolnick, Behind the Glass. Jays Talk Plus, back with you 10 to 12 every weekday. Sports at 590 The Fan and Sportsnet 360. Blair and Barker have you for Jays pregame starting at 5 o'clock as well. Jeff Merrick Show is next. Those NHL playoffs, Matthew Kachuk season continues with Jeff Merrick. Have a good holiday, guys.